You're listening to the Relationship-Centered Learning Podcast, a podcast to inspire and empower you to be a difference maker in a dysfunctional educational system. Hear weekly from adults and students who are having a radical impact in the education space as they share from their minds and hearts, giving us practical tools that we can take back to our classrooms and campuses. Here to take you outside the educational box is author, disruptor, and your host, Kevin Curtis. Hey, welcome back to the show, everyone. On today's episode, I'm interviewing Mireya Campbell. This is a special interview for me because Mireya and I are actually former friends from high school. Now, Mireya shares her struggles in life in getting into college and how she ultimately stayed committed into becoming an educator. She was an elementary teacher and an administrator here in San Antonio, Texas, but recently moved to the state of Georgia and had moved back to the classroom before regaining an administrator position in her new state. We talk about the differences in being the principal versus the assistant principal and how going back into the classroom for a short time impacted her career moving going forward. Hey, thanks for tuning in. Let's get started. Welcome to the Relationships in the Learning Podcast, where we put relationships at the center of all learning. I am thrilled today to have a friend from high school actually be on the podcast today and as an educator. So I'm going to welcome Mireya to the show. Welcome. Hello. How are you? Oh, man, I am blessed. So uh, before we jump into the content, just like in every episode, we always do connections before content. We do that in the GTKY format. So Mireya... I'll ask you five simple questions to get to know you a little bit better since we haven't seen or talked in so many years. And then you can ask me five GTKY questions and then we'll go from there. All right. Question number one, simple this. Let's just say this. What is your favorite cereal? Simple. That's a good question. I would have to say it's Special K. Oh my God. Healthy. Gosh almighty. I'm all like, Co- <laughs> I'm all like Cocoa Krispies, Cocoa Puffs, anything chocolate. Man. No. Special like, K. Protein one. I mean, that has oh, protein in there. Such an adult answer, Media. <laughs> Gosh, I know we're older, but God almighty. I know, I'm boring. I'm no, sorry. no, 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 no. That's good, though. Uh, I like that. No. All right. Question number two is simple this. If you could sing or perform a duet with somebody, who would you want to perform with? Oh, that's easy. Blake Shelton. Oh, wow. Okay. I love country music, and I'm uh, super, super fan, big fan of Blake Shelton. See, I'm a Jason Aldean freak. Like, I've seen him six times in concert, Jason Aldean. Yeah, yeah like, I love country music, too. But Jason Aldean, yeah. for whatever, man, uh, like, he's my man crush. That guy, like, anything, <laughs> anything he puts out, I am definitely listening to Jason Aldean. Oh, I right. love me some Jason Aldean, too. So. Good, 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 good. All right, so question number three, simple question two, what is your favorite color? That's a simple, easy question for me. My favorite color is purple. Purple. Okay, I don't mean many purples. Mine is blue, if you haven't guessed by the background. Background. Yes. Well, I would guess, I was like, wow, you have an amazing background too, for those that are listening. She has this sky mountain background. It's like, wow. I just figured that one out too today. I'm so proud of myself. You did a good job. Happy, yes. All right, so we'll go with technology next. Are Are you a Mac or a PC person? I'm a PC person. Yeah. Oh, okay. See, I was PC until I got into this. And then somebody introduced me because I was PowerPoint, right? And they were like, oh, you got to try out Keynote. And I was like, Keynote. And they were like, well, it's Mac's version of the presentation mode. And it's interesting because once I went Keynote, I never went back. And really? It, oh, it's uh, it's ridiculously how so much easier than PowerPoint. And 
transitions are easier, slides are different. And then I, once I really got into the Mac world, like you don't get viruses and you don't have to do all that other stuff. Oh and my so, gosh. Yeah, no. So it, trust me, I, once I went Mac, I never went back. So last simple question. I know you like to exercise, run, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. So what is your favorite like running shoe? What brand at least, if not model, what's your favorite brand of running shoe? I believe, well, I always go for the the nerdy look brand. So I don't look, I don't look for cool. I look for comfort. So I think Asics is, is my biggest, you know, my biggest go-to for running shoes. But I'll be honest with you, as I've gotten older, I'm almost 50 and my body doesn't work the same. So when I try to run, my knees kind of hurt, my ankles hurt, my back hurt. So I don't, I've kind of shied away from the running thing. So I do a lot more walking and a lot more weightlifting just because I can't stand the pressure to my knees. Welcome, welcome. That's why I don't run. All I do is walk. That's all I do, walk. So It's depressing. It's depressing because I really did enjoy running. I know. It's a great, a great thing for me to decompress. And, you know, I just, I would clear my head. And, and now it's just like, I, I don't get the same effect with running unless I'm running really fast. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm walking really fast. Walking really fast, yeah. Yeah, it's no. just not the same. Well, no, that's why I laugh when you said cool versus comfort. I'm like, oh, yeah, at this point, if I'm not even worried about looking cool, I need something comfortable on these dogs when they're barking because, like you said, my knees, back, everything. And I'm with you. I'm at this point where I lift weights and I walk, and that's kind of my cardio, and that's how I kind of try to stay fit. And, um, yeah, those are the two things that I'm, I'm with, too. All right, that's my five questions. All right. What do we got? Okay, so for you, question number one, because obviously, I mean, we, we knew each other in high school and passing and whatnot, but I don't think we really had an opportunity to have a conversation. So my question to you is question number one, pretty simple. Favorite soft drink? Dr. Pepper. Oh, I'm a Dr. Pepper lover too, but I don't drink drinks anymore. I say that. Well, I like to say I'm a former, but I think I just had one yesterday. Um, <laughs> so no, I love sodas, but they just love me too much. They like to stick around. And so, and you know, and somebody did one time, they were like, they did, they opened up 11 packets of sugar and uh-huh. poured oh, it in, yes. and they were like, would you tell your child, you know, that this is enough and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, yeah. And they're like, well, that's how many packs of sugar it's in a Coke. And I'm like, yeah, ouch. Yeah. Like that's a horrible visual, right? Uh, hurts, yeah. hurts. Absolutely. So yes, Dr. Okay. Pepper. Question number two, favorite place to visit? Nashville. I would move to Nashville if I could. Really? If well, you haven't, Nashville if you haven't such been. such a great place. Um, well, I mean, think about country music, but I mean, I will tell you the people, the atmosphere, there's wineries, there's music, there's broad- Broadway is like the sixth street of Austin, but country music, but you're also in proximity to like Kentucky and you can drive up and see like the Mammoth Cave, the water, the outdoor stuff, the hiking. I mean, there's just so much. And I don't know. I just like the vibe. Nashville definitely, hands down, would be a city I'd love to visit. In fact, I'll be there next Tuesday. I got a, <laughs> I have a presentation, in, speaking of Jason Aldean, Paris, Tennessee. I'm presenting in Paris, Tennessee next week. And so I get to fly wow. into Nashville. And since I can't make the flight back, I get to stay a night in Nashville an extra night. What? So, <laughs> yeah, so Nashville, great city if you haven't Funny been. that you say that because where I live right now, I'm in Atlanta, Georgia. So I'm about three and a half hours away, not too far from there. So I have not made it. I need to make a point to do that. Yeah, I was about to say, God, if it was less than a drive to Waco for me, I would, yeah, I would, oh, I would totally be there. At least, you know, at least go to visit it and see what it's like. And I forget because I have a nephew who's in the Atlanta area. And we talked about like when I go, you know, Nashville trying to meet halfway or connect or 
when I flew into Atlanta to get my tattoo in February, we were able to try to connect and things like that. So, well, okay. So that leads me to question number three, tattoos. Are you the tattoo guy? Are you a tattoo man? And obviously you said yes. Yeah. How many I tattoos? Mean, wow. Yeah. That's I mean, impressive. Yeah. This is, uh, I got this one. I like that. Yeah. I got this one in February. This is my second. I have one on my back with the word believe and a cross. That was my first tattoo I ever got. And so just two until next month, there'll be three. So you're coming. It's good that you said that. I wanted to ask you about the guy that you came to see here in Atlanta. I'm thinking about doing another one in memory of my sister. I don't know if you. So here's the deal. Here's the deal. He doesn't live there. He was actually visiting. He was a guest. He lives in flipping Eugene, Oregon. His name is Alec. No, I know. Trust me. But I was going to see him in Eugene, Oregon, and I saw on Facebook, he was like, hey, I'm going to be in the Atlanta area this week. And wow. I was like, so I was like, well, I got to fly to Eugene, Oregon, or I can fly to Atlanta. <laughs> and he was, yeah. you know, and it took me a year, over a year to get into him. And it sped up by three months by going to Atlanta versus wow. going to Eugene. So um, his, okay. the mother of his child was a strength and conditioning coach at a college. And again, it wasn't in Atlanta. It was like a small town of like an hour and a half outside, but it drove there okay. but yeah great guy just wish he was in the atlanta wow. area. that'd be easier to get to him but yeah so i'm flying to portland next month in november for tattoo number three to see him okay all right well so that was three questions question number four what's the one thing that you want people to remember you by god not who i used to be who i'm trying to be i would just say i want people to remember me for just unconditional love, generosity, giving, giving. I'm, I'm a joyful giver. I would, I'm trying to do as much for many, as many people as I can in life, despite who I used to be. Good answer. I think mm-hmm. I feel the same way. I think the one thing that I want people to remember me if I suddenly were to go is, is I want them to think, you know, that she was somebody that lived by strong moral principles and that she was a good example and that she just genuinely cared about people. Mm, yeah, absolutely. What I want people to think about me. All right. So one, my last question, and this is something, just one thing, anything that you have never shared with anybody, what is the one thing that you've never shared with anybody that they, they would be so surprised to know? My God, yeah. I'm so dang vulnerable. I share about everything. So I don't know of anything that I've never shared. It would be things like I used to ride bulls. Yeah. You don't remember uh, that. Wow. No, no, no. This is this is in my this was in my mid-20s. Yeah, I walked away from student teaching. <laughs> I walked away from student teaching last semester, UTSA, graduating, everything's going. And then the woman that I was engaged to, we blew up and it blew up. And then I walked away from college, walked away from student teaching, walked away from everything and moved to Colorado and lived a year up there and rode bulls and did sheet metal insulation in new homes. Wow. Yeah. is a 20, a mid 20 life crisis. So when people say you rode bulls, they're like, what? And I used to have a mullet and I used to have all this. Yeah. It was just, just a crazy time. I never knew that. <laughs> Yes, ma'am. That's awesome. This was way before Facebook. So uh, okay. unfortunately, unfortunately, 
But uh, I loved your wow. questions. Great questions. Seriously. So that is the GTKY Connections Before Content part of the show. So for our listeners, if you want to know more about GTKY Connections, head over to our website at rclfirst.com. You can click on the orange link and get 28 GTKY questions that you can go back and, and use in with your staff or with your students. And if you also want to join our weekly circles on Monday nights, Thursday nights, and Saturday mornings, just click over to or go over to rclfirst.com and click on the orange button that says join circle time. And you can circle with Denise on either Monday, Thursday, or Saturday to just join educators to connect and feel valued, seen, and heard. All right. That part of the show is out of the way. So I said this at the beginning for our listeners. So Midea and I knew each other in high school. And then obviously after high school, I was a little bit older, grew in different directions. And then kind of connected through social media, but really have never seen each other nor had another conversation since something in high school. So the idea is I know she's an educator. I know she's making an impact. She was formerly in San Antonio. She's now in Atlanta, Georgia, but I want to know just as much as my listeners. So who is Mireya the educator? First of all, what made you get into education? What was like that first, like, okay, how did you get there? That's a really, really good question. Growing up in a Hispanic family, you know, I remember my mother, my sister, the traditional role was to just be a, a housewife, right? You know, you took care of your family, you cooked, you cleaned, you raised your, your babies. And uh, that was pretty much the extent of it. And I remember I was attending uh, Westwood Elementary School. And my second grade teacher was the first Hispanic female that I'd ever had in school, obviously, in that short time. But it was the first time that it hit me that a Hispanic woman could be in a different role other than in the, in the home, like to be a housewife. Like, you know, she could be educated and very eloquent and just, just have a presence about her. And I just remember thinking to myself, that's who I want to be. I want to mm. be just like my second grade teacher. Her name was Miss Lasso. She was beautiful. She was, she was just a wonderful person. And I just remember I loved going to school because she was so nurturing, but at the same time, you know, she just had this presence about her and it just really inspired me. So fast forward, I mean, I, I knew from that moment on that that's what I wanted to do. Unfortunately, my life took a bit of a turn. My parents divorced pretty early. I guess I was going into the sixth grade and, and I came from a pretty difficult situation, family life. There was a lot of domestic violence, a lot of alcoholism. And so I, I witnessed a lot of turmoil in, in my lifetime, at least at that, that young age. Anyway, when my parents divorced, I think I was a freshman, I was going to be a freshman in high school. And that's about the time that I remember kind of crossing paths with you and in high school, because you were much older than, than myself. I made it through my freshman year and my sophomore year, and I was kind of living on my own and living out of my car and working. And I ended up dropping out of high school when I was 17. So there's a time period where you didn't see me again. That's because I was kind of trying to survive. But I never lost sight of the fact that that's what I wanted to do was to be an educator. I wanted to teach kids. I wanted to impact kids' lives. And so somewhere along the way, I met my first husband, John. And um, I think I was 19 years old at that time. I'd already decided that I was going to go back to school and, and get my GED. And I was able to find a Catholic school there in San Antonio, Texas, that allowed me to basically do a self-study so you could, you know, take this, uh, the exams on your own, you would study at home and then come in to take the exams just so that I could get my, my high school diploma. 
And I was able to do that. So I actually didn't finish high school till I was 19 years old. I got married pretty early on and then came the babies. And I have two children that are 18 months apart. And I remember that, again, I never lost sight of what I wanted to do. And that's, you know, and, and of course, when you become a young mom and you're, you know, you're raising children and you're going, you know, you're working. And, and at the time, my ex-husband now, he was a, a football coach, you know, you're almost like a single parent. So when I decided to go back to school, I think I was about 23, 24 years old. I decided that it was time for me to go and get my, my degree. And that was a whole roller coaster ride. But I eventually finished and I graduated at the age of 30 um, with my, my certification in elementary education. And then I landed a job in fifth grade where I stayed for about 10 years. I taught fifth grade at various locations in San Antonio, actually in Northside where we went to school. Mm-hmm. I taught at title campuses. I taught at non, non-titled campuses. And then about 10 years in, I decided, uh, I think I want to go back to school and get my master's degree in educational leadership. And of course, at that point, my kids were already in high school, and that was a good time for me to focus on something like that. And 16 months later, I, I got my, my master's degree in educational leadership. And a year later, I became a, the vice principal at Lock Hill Elementary School, where I remained for four years. And then I was promoted to principal at Scarborough Elementary School, where I was there for two years before I relocated here to Atlanta. Coming to Atlanta, I had to start from scratch, you know, all over again. And I took a job my first year here back in 2018, I believe it was, as a fifth grade teacher, stepping back into the classroom, but in a different state, learning different standards, assessments, you name it. I mean, it was just a lot to have to take on, but it was a really good experience. And then I spent one year teaching fifth grade. And then the last two years, I've now, I'm now the assistant principal here in Fayette County, which is a little south of Atlanta at Cleveland Elementary School, which is a titled campus. And I, I love what I do. So I'm slowly working my way back up to that eventual principal position. Hopefully, God willing, we'll see. Absolutely. No, thank you for taking me on that journey. That's like I said, for the listeners, this, I'm selfish too. I, I want to catch up with you too. So there was a part of a, a, a selfish reason for bringing you on the show. So thinking about this, because to me, I was uh, I spent 10 years coaching classrooms, taught science primarily. Then I went into administration at the elementary for two years as an assistant principal. Then I was a middle school principal for two years. Then I went back to being an assistant principal for five years. And so what do you think, what are the, when you came back to being an assistant principal after being a principal, what were some of the things that you were able to appreciate about that position the second time around? Not having to make the big decisions. Yes, right? My gosh. Like I have to be the one that's, you know, that's on the chopping block. You know, your neck is on the chopping block and the parent's ready to kill you. You know, I just, I, I really... I took that for granted. I was so, I guess, determined after my four years as, a, as the vice principal at Lock Hill to be in that role of principal that I just completely, you know, that, that time, even though I learned a lot, I, I just wanted to get out of there and I wanted to be in charge, you know, I wanted to have my own campus. And then I found out real quick, like that, poof, I, I don't know if I really like this. I mean, the pressure, the, um, the responsibility, and just the fact that you can't keep everybody happy was so overwhelming for me. Oh my God. Yes. Coming back to Uh an assistant principal position. You know, I think about the the current principal that I work with now and, you know, she's here till seven, eight o'clock at night. And I'm like, (laughs) 
I'm four o'clock. I'm going to go work out now. I took care of my stuff. Got, got to go, you know? Right. Um, so, you know, you just, you take that for granted that you don't have to make the big, big decisions. Does it mean that I, that I can't? Absolutely not. I can make those decisions. It was just, it's just a difficult, difficult thing to do. And, and as an assistant principal, it's nice not having to do that. I agree. I think that was one of the the uh, silver linings of they were like, oh, you went back to being assistant principal. I'm like, oh, yeah, it's so good right now. It was uh, a little relieving, you know, and, and as you said, I don't have to be the person in charge and I could still have an impact. I could still, you know, exactly. I was still a leader. And, you know, I think that the hardest thing for me is when we started. So for me, I was at Ed White Middle School in Northeast. That's where I was at, spent the last five years from 2010 to 2015. And then we, we were the first campus in the state of Texas to pilot restorative practices. Let's just call it that. And we called it restorative discipline. And so we did that for three years. And, and the hard part for me, Medea, was piloting a relationship-centered approach mm-hmm. in the modern day school, particularly back then. Like relationships are definitely struggle to be a priority at any, at any campus. But I will tell you, I go back and I have to reflect that my first two years at the elementary, leaving the high school, like I always tell people, it's at least the most fertile soil. You know, relationships to a certain extent being a priority seems to be more fertile at the elementary. And then the higher you go up in secondary, the high school is the least fertile soil. So at a middle school, I I struggled with leading this initiative of like, well, let's let's build relationships with kids, and the teachers mm-hmm. are like, mm, what? No. Like, that, why, why, why would we do that? And and I always say this on the podcast. I always talk about like, why is it so hard for some educators and even? Well, let's start here. Let's start. I'll, I'll do two questions. Let's start with teachers first, and then we'll go to leaders. Why, in your opinion, do you feel like sometimes it's hard for teachers? to allow themselves to like focus on relationships being at the center of their learning? Because I think that teachers are over inundated with keeping up with curriculum and timelines and assessments and, you know, analyzing the data and determining, you know, putting groups together. I mean, it's, it's just one thing after another, but they really can't, there isn't time built into the schedule that allows them to just build those relationships, to have those conversations, meaningful conversations. It's because they have so many pressures. And it's not just because it's coming from, you know, the state. It's coming from administration. It's coming from the, the district. I mean, it's everything. It's just like this top-down thing that, you know, and they just feel, and I remember being a, as a classroom teacher, I you know, trying to keep up with everything, the timelines and you know, teaching content and making sure the assessments were done and running records and grading papers and putting grades in and meeting with parents. It was just so much that at the end of the day, I was exhausted. And even though I would come back to that and think, okay, I I didn't take the time to have a conversation with the kid and I felt bad for it. It was because of everything else that we place on teachers is the reason why they can't put that at the forefront of their instruction. Yeah, I was, you know, I didn't even think about it, Mayday, but, but like what you just described, you had to go to Atlanta and start going back into the classroom after being a leader. So you definitely recently just felt what it was like oh, yeah. to experience all of those things that get in the way, right? Exactly. And let me tell you, so, you know, when I think about Texas and being at Northside, that I was there for 17 plus years, and then coming to Georgia 
and really learning everything about, I, I came to work for Gwinnett County, which Gwinnett County is probably the second largest, if not the largest school district in the state of Georgia. And it's just huge. And the school that I went to work at was a Title I campus, 98% of the student population economically disadvantaged and on free and reduced, you know, lunch or meals. And 95% of them were probably from another country like, you know, Guatemala, you know, some Latin American country. So, you know, my skill of being Hispanic and speaking Spanish, that came into effect and, 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 and helped me. But I have never been at a campus where the driving force or the focus was nothing but assessments. We were literally taking assessments like every three weeks. It was a different assessment to collect more data. And I thought to myself, why are we killing ourselves giving these assessments that the, for what? What's the purpose? Let me teach. Let me teach. Let me do what I know how to do and, and talk with kids and teach. And it was just, I just, I found myself very, very frustrated. And, and I could hear those frustrations from my colleagues. Mm-hmm you know, just being overworked and tired. And because they were, it was just this nonstop assessments, 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 and teachers were just not allowed to teach for the love of teaching and build relationships. And I, I, had, I couldn't take it. I left after a year. I mean, I was, I was looking for another, <laughs> um, in a different system. Like I started in August or July and I was already looking for another job in like November. I mean, it was, yeah. it was that ridiculous. So Fortunately, coming here to Fayette County, and it's just about maybe a 35, 40 mile difference between Gwinnett and where Fayette County is, very different. You know, we're not overly assessing and there's actually, you know, people enjoy what they're doing. And I'm not saying that there isn't pressure because there is still pressure. Absolutely. But it's certainly not the same quantity of assessments that I was doing, but yet a year and a half ago. I just, it was, it was ridiculous. So I'm very fortunate to be where I'm at right now. And going back to your question about being an assistant principal and what I like about that is I actually have the time now to spend in the classroom observing and offering the support for teachers for, you know, to help improve their instructional practices where I didn't get to do that as a principal, even though I was supposed to, right? Right. As a principal, you're having phone calls and sit in IEP meetings and, you know, 504 meetings and, you know, put out fires here and there and, you know, all just on and on and on. This position allows me to actually be where I enjoy being. And that's working with teachers, helping them improve their craft, working with kids, getting to know them. That really allows me to do that. So I honestly, I mean, I'm not in a, in a rush to put myself back in a principal's position. I'm happy where I'm at right now. And I think this is where I'm going to stay for a while. So we'll see. But that's another yeah. I enjoy the role that Good I Good deal. No, I love that you said that because I think you you painted a, a very illustrated picture of what it's like. Sorry. to be. No, no, no. I'm saying I think, you know, most of our listeners are educators. So they're probably like, yes, yes. They're like, you know, yes. So I think the hardest part is in what I've realized is much like you said, I left education in 2015 because I said, what we're doing currently in our model is ineffective. It's not changing. You know, when I was in the system principal and we suspended 1,149 kids or types of suspension in a year, I was like, okay, that didn't work because the behaviors continued to increase and discipline increased. But despite we were the number one exclusionary campus out of all Northeast, right? So it's like, okay, 
we can see the writing on the wall and we can see the systemic approaches that are not working and they're archaic at times. And we're all, it's all about data. It's all about assessments. It's all about accountability. And then the more I started, so then when I took that leap of faith and I came out here, then when I did media get with the school district that would be like, Hey, we really want to like take a relationship approach. Right. And I'm like, Oh, okay. Yeah. And then I would start to help them and build this. Now, five years later, I'm very confident in the model that we approach, but it was so interesting to go, oh my God, this does work. You know, schools would be like, our scores have went up, our attendance went up, our teacher morale is up. And you're just, but then it's so crazy because when you talk about it, it's like so common knowledge to say, well, we have to build relationships with our staff and we have to get along and we have to have kids to feel valued, seen and heard. And, you know, we want to make sure that we connect with kids. And so it's like, we talk about it like it's so well known, but then there's no accountability for connections, no systemic approach to make sure that teachers are getting the time to focus on that. And so I'm just hoping and praying that in our lifetime that we see a change or a shift in education that they're like, hey, not only do I want you to have successful academic scores, I want you to have successful connections with kids. And I'm going to expect that. And I'm going to hold you accountable for that. Can you imagine a school environment where those become priorities like anything else? That would be awesome. So let me ask you a question. What's stopping us? From creating that environment? I think state, you know, testing and accountability. I think it's districts and school boards, you know, all of the things, the mandates that they hand down. I just think that it, unless, unless it happens at the national level and then it comes down to the state level, it's not going to happen. It's not. I agree happen. with you. No, I agree so. with you. I think until you and I can sit on a podcast forever, we can have 100 million people download, we can do whatever, it's not going to change. And right. to somebody at the top, right? And so, you know, I'm still in Texas. Until TEA says, Jeez. okay, we're going to hold teachers, we're going to hold schools accountable. Now, the hard part is they're going to say, well, we can't measure. There's no, uh, you know, like Panorama and other software, you know, and other softwares out there that can kind of give us kind of a, you know, OHI you know, different things on, on culture and relationships, but until it's measurable and, I, and I'm telling them, why are we waiting until it's flipping measurable? Why, if we know it's in our best interest and if it improves scores and if it improves attendance and, imp- and it decreases exclusionary consequences. And so a formula of building relationships is an approach that can be totally successful, but why are we not focusing on that? And I, you and I don't have the answer, but that state level, I'm with you until somebody holds them. Because I remember being a principal, and you did talk about this, media. Your name was on that report for the state, right, of accountability. Absolutely. And, and that's what I try to tell him. In fact, I was uh, working with Arlington ISD, and we were getting our little soapbox moment. And I said, you know, what is it going to take? And they said, her name was Angela, and she said, you realize, Kevin, the problem is, is that those principals aren't going to invest in relationships as long as TEA is evaluating on their campus, right. these areas. Right. They're like, you can talk about relationships until the world. All you want. But until my name is on a relationship report or accountability for connections, I'm not doing that right. because that doesn't jeopardize my job. My job is jeopardized by the scores. So then it trickles down. And then do you feel like the teachers feel the same way? My job is jeopardized. 
if I do, if you catch me building, you ever walked into a classroom and a teacher was building relationships or connecting with the kids, but you saw that anxiety, fear, fear and anxiety, it was like fear in their face. Like, oh my gosh, I'm supposed to be teaching content. And it's like a deer in headlights. I'm, I'm sorry. And they apologize, right? Yeah. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. No, <laughs> I think that also when we think about evaluating teachers, you know, I think about right now, I'm in that, in that process of evaluating my teachers based on the Georgia standards that they set forth the teacher keys that they call it, the teacher keys evaluation. And there's 10 domains, but nothing in there is written about relationships. I mean, there's professionalism, there's communication, there's instructional practices, differentiation, but I think there needs to be something in there about relationships. How do you build relationships with your students? You ought to be able to see through class discussions, through maybe lesson plans, however, whether it's virtually or in person, that, that component. And you should be able to evaluate them. Yeah, no, I, I'm with you on that. And so, you know, I think in the meantime, we're just going to continue to enjoy conversations and make it relevant so that people will, it won't go away. I don't want it to go away. And that's why I created the podcast during the pandemic, because I was like, look, if I can't travel to schools and get my message out there, then I'm going to create a platform that just brings people on here. And I strategically don't bring people on here to say, hey, do you agree with me? It's not hard to get an educator to come on here media and go, hey, do you feel like relationships are important to you in your work that you do as an educator? And they're like, they're like, hell yeah. And then they're like, tell me how you do that. You know, so it's not like it's hard. I guess I just haven't, I just haven't gotten the guests on at the state level or at the national level. That can actually have a conversation about that. Yeah, they could go, Kevin, this is why this is never going to happen, you know, or what it's going to take. But hey, I'm going to continue to enjoy those conversations in the meantime. So let me ask you a question. I believe that the perfect time, unfortunately, in a pandemic, well, this is the time that everybody's like, well, oh my God, we really have to focus on relationships now. These kids haven't been in seven months. And But what's interesting is, is I'm like, okay, so you can hit control, alt, delete. Here's the opportunity to blow the current box up that we, you and I have been stuck in as educators and leaders, right? right? right. So we can blow the box up and now let's focus on relationships. And what's interesting is in my world, it's quiet as ever. It's like crickets. It's like you would think, and I say this not, and I want people to get this out. I'm not saying because I'm trying to drum up business. I'm just saying I'm laughing because it's like, Oh my God, do you know how many people are like, we really can't focus on that this year. We're focusing on a pandemic. And I'm like, yeah, part of the pandemic focus is you got to connect with your kids. So right. you would think my, we would like quadruple our interest right now. And instead it's like crickets. And I'm just laughing because what I came up with, Mireya, was in, I, I was really outside the box. And I said, listen, every school is jumping to social emotional learning trauma-informed practices right race culture diversity all the things that society and and, and schools and, and and listen my opinion we need all of those things right but my thought was if the schools really took the time to slow down and think about what do all of those programs come in it's in a lesson-based curriculum. So social-emotional learning is an amazing, and I'm so glad that Castle brought this to the forefront and we've been utilizing it, and it's mm-hmm, so important. Mm-hmm. But my question is, is lesson-based curriculums blend relationships, they don't build relationships. And how are we going to talk about our social-emotional needs or race or culture and diversity if we don't flip and know each other? 
which is why I came up with the phrase, because my tool is what to just get to know you, which is what we modeled at the beginning of the show, right? So we mm-hmm. have two-minute connections, 90-second spark plan, 60-second relate breaks. They're GTKY-based. They're not lesson-based. So you don't have to say, here's my objective. Here's how long it takes. It's simply get to know you. Because if we can build our school on a rock of relationship instead of the sand of initiatives, then we can get a chance to know each other before right. we can take on those heavier programs that schools need to bring on. So my goal is not cancel them out. I just want to think like, shouldn't we get in front of them? What's your thoughts on that? I agree 100% that we should be able to focus on that relationship piece before we can even address the instructional piece. My only concern, and and obviously it's what everybody else is faced with, is is finding the time to do that. Absolutely. Right now in my district, especially in, in our campus, you know, when we first came back, started talking about bringing kids back, brick and mortar, hybrid model, or virtual. One of the biggest concerns that myself and the principal that I currently work with was that social emotional piece. Like, what are our kids going to walk through the door with? You know, we don't know what was happening the last six months at home, you know, behind closed doors. We don't know the fears and the concerns that they have. We really need to spend and invest time just focusing on, on the kids and really getting to know them. So one of the things that we've done here is made it mandatory to have the morning meeting, but not the scripted morning meeting, the morning meeting that, okay, you know, pull this little idea or, you know, little question out of the box and let's talk about it. No, no, nothing like that. We do have a curriculum called the Voyager that they follow, but, you know, I instructed my teachers that it needs to be genuine and it needs to be about, you know, just simply asking questions. How was your night last night? You know, what did you do? You know, what are the things that you're looking forward to? Things that would just kind of generate natural conversation, you know, that would lead to this or maybe lead to something else. And so that's what our teachers have been doing is is really, and I've been able to sit in on, on some of those conversations, those morning meetings. And it's surprising how quickly kids want to share their their fears, what's going on at home, especially as it relates to the pandemic or the fact that so many of them, we've had quite a few kiddos here that have experienced death because of the pandemic. Parents have lost jobs and now they're living, you know, with whomever and they're having to share their space. And so these are these are real worries that these kids have right now and they don't know how to navigate through those feelings. And Forget, you know, reading, writing, and arithmetic. I mean, they could care less about that. They're more worried about whether or not when they go home, there's going to be food on the table, or there's going to be electricity, or my mom's going to still have her job. I mean, so we really want to focus on that. And I was able to, to sit in on, on several of those morning meetings, and it's just been so enlightening. You get to know a kid and really what where they're coming from and, and, and the fears that they have and their thoughts and their hopes, just by simply simply having a conversation and just listening to them. It's been enlightening for me. Now, being here, this is only my second year as the assistant principal, so this opportunity has also given me the ability to learn who my kids are. You know, when you're a first-year administrator, whether you're a principal or an assistant principal, it takes you time to get to know who kids are. And so by walking in on these morning meetings and, and just really focusing on having those conversations and just meaningful conversations, I've had the opportunity to connect kids with siblings and families and really get to know and hear what's going on. And then I can call parents to try to figure out and help them and put them in touch with resources and 
We also have an assigned caseworker to our campus. So anytime that there's an issue that I feel like, hey, you know, these families are in jeopardy or they're in need, I call her and, and we with the counselor and we get together. And it's it's just been really, really good the last, what, six, seven weeks, eight weeks that we've been in school that we've been able to do that. So, um, but that's what we're doing here. I don't know what other places are doing, but it's really been, that has been at the forefront of our of our approach since the start of the school year. And it's something that I worry about. I mean, I, I lie awake at night thinking about my kids, some of the ones that are, have really suffered and experienced things that they should not have experienced at such an early age because of this pandemic, because of the things that they see on TV as it relates to race. You know, it just, it's just, it's, it's overwhelming for them and they just don't know how to deal with those feelings and those, those emotions. So my focus is just to make sure that my teachers can be there for them. I can be there for them and we can provide the resources for the families that they need just to be able to get through this. Absolutely. Well, thank you for doing that. And that's what I think, one, which you, when you talk about it, you said, hey, this is the way that we've structured this. So there was some mm -hmm. intentionality into this because, you know, I always say this phrase, you can't wing relationships. You can't just wing all of a sudden knowing somebody. It's it. You know, it can accidentally happen in an airport or sitting next to somebody or whatever. But for the most part, our kids need us to be more intentional than ever. So building that structured time of morning meeting, connection time, whatever you want to call it, it's not about what it's called. It's how you utilize that time and what you do with that information. And as you pointed out, I think I've always said this questions start the conversations, the answers shape the conversation. Right. So, you know, sometimes, you know, they're, you know, just like joking earlier about, you know, well, what's your cereal or what's this or something? It's, it could be something so subtle, but before you know it, it leads us down a path because, you know, I always have a phrase, every student wants to feel valued, seen and heard. And what you're creating is, is an atmosphere and a climate and a culture and a classroom where I start to feel safe to feel valued, seen, and heard because you're creating these opportunities for students to not have to engage on the academic success or the focus at that moment. Right. And there's a gentleman named Dave Stewart that says MGCs. He calls them moments of genuine connection. And that's what you're creating. You guys are creating MGCs when you have the intentionality of asking these questions, getting to know the kids, because that's big, my biggest platform is how are we going to talk about their feelings of what they're seeing on TV or whether the lights are on or whether the food's going on if they don't trust us and if they don't understand, hey, you're a really, you are a good person and you have my best interests. So there's a gentleman named Joe Beckman and it was episode one and he talked about the best way to be vulnerable for teachers because that's a hard part for some teachers. Not everybody is as vulnerable. And Sia talked about being, not, not trying to focus on being extraordinary, but being ordinary. So when teachers are ordinary, and when you're ordinary with your kids, do you feel like that's when you make those, what, what Dave Stewart calls MGCs, those moments of genuine? Absolutely, because it, kids can identify with that. You know, they, and let me tell you something. Kids can pick up on whether or not you're genuine and that you truly care. I mean, they know off the bat. So there's no sugarcoating that or trying to hide it. And, and when I walk into a classroom and I'm watching an instruct teacher interact with, with a student and, you know, the student and I observe the student really excited about wanting to share something personal with the teacher about, you know, something that they did the night before or, or a place that, that they got to visit. And they are just so excited about that. And the response from the teacher is one of looking at her watch 
or looking over here or not giving them eye contact and they're just, they don't seem to be receptive or that they're receiving the information that bothers me. And so when I call the teacher back into my office after, you know, an observation, that's one of the things that I talk to them about is that they have to be very cognizant of that is, and it's the same with adults, you know, even with adults, when I'm, when I'm talking to a teacher or a teacher sharing information, I make sure to give them eye contact and to stay invested, even though I've got 101 million things to do and my phone is going off or the walkie talkie or my, my, my watch is vibrating. I don't look at any of that stuff because I want the teacher to know or that the person that I'm talking to that I'm invested in them. And then to follow up the next day with a question with, hey, how was that? Blah, 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 blah. You know, and remembering what they shared with me, I think that goes a long way. And it's the same for students and in the classroom with their teachers. So I make a point to point that out to them. And it's so funny how when I do that and I'll say, you know, but you were looking at your phone or you were looking at your you were looking at your watch and you really weren't listening to what this child was trying to share with you speaks volumes to this child. And so they know that you're not invested. Kids know. So for me, it's very important to model that for my teachers as well as to expect that of them, you know, to really, truly be invested. And I think that when you, when you exhibit that and you demonstrate that for kids, kids will buy into whatever it is that you have to say because they know that you're genuine, you know, vulnerability. You know, when I was teaching fifth grade, I talked a lot about my own personal experiences growing up not having a lot of, you know, resources available to me, being, you know, coming from an environment that was a lot of turmoil and unrest and not having, you know, I even talked a little bit about living in my car. And when I dropped out of high school and, you know, having to work and not knowing where the money was going to come from to just eat, you know, they really bought into that. And I shared with my students, because at that age, obviously, they, they can relate a little bit more. At that point, they're thinking about their future. They probably have goals about, you know, being somebody someday. And I wanted them to see that even with somebody like me, who, you know, came from such a difficult background and still, you know, given the circumstances of how we, I got to where I, I, I was able to get where I'm at. And it's not because, you know, I was lazy or anything like that. It was just, that was the the cards that I was dealt. But even with those cards that I was dealt, I was able to find a way where there's a will, there's a way and anybody can do it. I wanted my kids to be able to know that, especially in, you know, with the kids where they came from that I taught, especially in, you know, last year, the year before when I was in Gwinnett, a lot of those families that I, I worked with or that I taught, you know, they were uneducated. They came from different countries. And this was an opportunity for their children to be successful and, and, and to go on and live the American dream. And, and I wanted them to know that, you know, anybody can be successful. It doesn't matter where you come from or what cards you were dealt with. So I wanted to be able to share that vulnerability with them so that they could relate to me. You know, I, I could get kids to do whatever, you know, I needed them to do. Now, whether or not that goes on to equal success down the road, I don't know. I would love to be able to have a glass, you know, ball and see what they're doing from year to year and, and if they actually do become successful. But, you know, I, I think that's important as an educator is to always be genuine and for you to show that vulnerability so that kids can relate to you. Otherwise, you're not going to get anywhere with them, especially in the academic world. So with what you just said, And I was actually just listening to Brene Brown's podcast earlier, Unlocking Us, and she's actually doing a new one called Dare to Lead. She was talking about courage and vulnerability being hand in hand, right? And so what's Mm -hmm. interesting is 
what you just said was beautiful and it's particularly how you ended it. So then my question is, if we know that one of the cursors for academic success with our students is that we have to make connections, but making connections also requires us mm -hmm. to be somewhat vulnerable. All right. I think everybody's comfort, it's that word vulnerable. I said it on an earlier episode I'm recording. So sorry, people are going to hear this twice. It's like that word moist. You know, people hear it, they're like, ooh, vulnerable, moist. You know, it's like that yeah. word. So I try, when I work with educators that struggle with vulnerability, Mide, it's hard because when it's easy for you and it's hard for them, you're, you look at them like, what is so hard about this? But yet, when I started to really work with schools on a regular basis, and really started to see that this is a common factor, I would have to figure in almost like an IEP, I would have mm -hmm. to individualize, okay, this teacher needs this comfort level to kind of work into baby steps into working into vulnerability. Right. So if we know it's so important, again, I feel like as leaders, even if they're not getting it in their college prep or you know, any, whatever it is, you know, college readiness or even alternative certification, then I feel like I'm asking leaders to step up to the plate and start individualizing almost like levels of vulnerability with their staff. You know, like we've got, to, as you said earlier, if you model it, then they can see what it looks like. But then we can't ask them to be you or me. We have to ask them to be them. But ultimately, you got to get almost like you have to walk with them and give them a specific strategy or an idea or something because they just can't think on their own what vulnerability looks like. Have you ever explained right. that? Does that make sense to you? Absolutely. Being here at, at Cleveland, my first year as the AP, you know, your staff perceives you a particular way. You know, it's almost like they see you in this, you know, they put you in this box or on this, this pedestal and they, and they see you as this very professional, you know, you have the perfect life, but you're somebody to be very much respected. And I get it. Year two, though, coming in, I thought, all right, with everything that's going on in the pandemic, I need for them to, if they're going to buy in, to what it is that we as an administrative team want for our campus is to, to build relationships, to focus on that, to make those connections. And we ourselves are going to have to model that for them and just start that, ignite that spark of, of having those conversations. So of course, you know, my, my principal, this is her first year. And so she's really relied on me because I've been here the second year. I, I already know who the staff are. And she said, you know, I, I need for you to do that and just kind of spearhead that and see where we can go with this. And I said, okay, I'll, I'm fine. I'm the kind of person that I'm an open book. I'm not going to lie or sugarcoat anything. My life has been, you know, turbulent, but I'm, I'm here and I've learned from my, those lessons along the way. And I think that because of that, it makes me a much more passionate person and more relatable. I think for, for some people that, you know, I didn't have the perfect life. And, and even though I'm in this position, I'm not, you know, I, I didn't, I don't go home and my, my life isn't so hunky-dory, you know, and so I think I'm relatable that way. So anyway, make a long story short, I decided to put that vulnerability out there, and I, I did a piece on really talking about how our influences, how we were raised, how we were educated, our own background, how that influences how we relate to people in the classroom, our kids in the classroom, and I wanted them to see that this is who I am. This is who I, where I come from. This is the, the experiences that I had as a child, and then on into you know, elementary school, middle school, and high school, and where all of that came from and, and how that has shaped me into the person that I am today. 
And I remember thinking to myself, I'm going to say some things that they're not going to be comfortable with, right? Especially as it, as it relates to race, being in a Hispanic family and growing up with a very, what we used to call male machismo father, who's very, very strong. You didn't ask questions. You know, you didn't, you didn't go against him, his rules or whatever. And I remember sharing a little bit about that and how he was what I would call a racist. He told me growing up, you know, don't you ever think about marrying somebody outside of the Hispanic culture or even less outside of the Catholic religion. And I share that information. And then I went on to share that I was a high school dropout and, you know, and here I am. And it was just like this, like I opened up this floodgate, you know, where all of a sudden these people just saw me in a completely different light. And I remember following the the presentation and and I'd given them some homework to go to think about and that I would follow up with them during their team meetings just to kind of have continue that conversation. I got emails and text messages from some of my my staff just thanking me for being that vulnerable that they didn't know that about me and it really did change their respect for me. And so I just think, you know, again, if we're going to expect that change in our teachers we have to be the ones to, to model that for them. And we have to show them that it's okay to be vulnerable and show them and give them those strategies to do so and, and continue that conversation. So consequently, that's part of what I do in my mission this year is every so often, about every six weeks or so, I get together with my teachers during their planning time and, and we talk about some difficult conversations. I mean, we talk about different things, about how they were raised or, you know, their perspectives on education or how they relate to their kids, especially if they, the kids are from a different cultural background, you know, and, and mm-hmm. how it affects how they teach them and relate to them. And so we've had some really good conversations, hard conversations. It wasn't easy for me to say that, yeah, my father was a racist. I mean, mm-hmm. because you think about it, he truly was, but that's not who I am. You know, that's not how I, you know, the experiences that I had and, and the people that I associated with back in school, high school and, and on, that's not how I believed. And so, but he did have an impact on how I taught my kids that the very first couple of years in school. And, and reflecting back on that, I thought, oh my gosh, had I known and really truly understood who I was and where I came from and, and how my, my upbringing really does shape how you teach in the classroom, I think I would have been a better teacher. I feel kind of bad about the <laughs> classes that I taught. You know, I, I did them a huge disservice, but I mean, I, I didn't know. Now I know. And so I want to be able to convey that to my teachers moving forward, the skills that they need, the strategies that they need in order to build those relationships and make those connections with kids. It's hard. It really is very, very hard if you don't know who you are as an individual. It's not going to happen. Oh, oh, wow. No, I think right there, that was a, that was definitely a mic drop because that right there is where I'm at. I'm at 51 trying to figure out, ah, man, I'm starting to get an insight to really who I am. And it's interesting how it comes in different waves. But I will tell you, there is a common thread. This is like, I don't know, episode 30-something for me. And I will tell you, there's a common thread, Maria, and it's so simple. There's a teacher at Wagner High School mm-hmm. that had said, if you don't model it first for your kids, you're not going to get it in return, right? He was like, you know, teaching at the high school. He went back to Wagner to teach there. And so it's just so funny. It's so simple because what I hear you saying is, look, I'm intentionally modeling this for my staff and while simultaneously building connections and showing them, hey, I'm just ordinary, 
right? I've had struggles. I've had successes and I've had struggles. And then, then what happens is the reciprocal effect of that is you build connections. They see you different. They see you in a way of like, okay, yes, you still get the respect and the authority of the, of the person that you are and the title that you deserve. But at the end of the day, you're still just Mireya, right? right, right. <laughs> you're, you're just a person. Just and a person. It, well, here's the deal. I'll say this one. You're a person, not a position. Right. Right. Exactly. And then what yes. happens is if we can take that same cycle of what I call campus connections and now let's go make classroom connections mm-hmm. in the exact same methodology. You go into the classroom, you have your position, right? Mm-hmm. But they need you to be a person. And I will tell you out of the six or so episodes that I've recorded with students, Medea, every flipping student says, I just wish our, our teachers saw us as human beings or people or whatever, right? Like right, with, with yeah. ideas and beliefs. And <laughs> instead of, a, instead and, of yes. a, a score that's going to be right. on a piece of paper for them, right? Exactly. It's, and so I guess I look back at this and go, gosh, this isn't really that hard, but there's so many things that get in the way, in the way. Yep. of of making this happen. And that's, to me, I'll be honest, that's the football coach in me. Like, that's the X's and the O's. I'm like, okay, how do we come up with a new play that maneuvers around? We run a route around right. time. We run it, we, we do a little play, scheming it around this, right. you know, what the teachers are dealing with. And that's what's fascinating. And that, that is my why on like, I'm determined to help us collaboratively figure out, I don't have all the answers. And I tell people all the time, they're like, oh, you're an expert. I'm like, no, 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 I'm experienced. And what I'm experiencing is jacking this up. I'm experiencing (laughs) jacking this up. Personally, professionally, I'm a a master of jacking crap up. So I would tell you, so, but what I tell them is I've jacked it up enough to go, wait a minute, let's not run that play again. You know, right. because that play sucked and, and it yes. ain't worked and it ain't worked since nineteen eighty eight when I was in high school, right? So at the end of the day, let's call a new play. And that's why I said, Media, the football coach in me is like, look, we need a two thousand twenty one playbook, right? We're coming into that. And that playbook, we're in a flipping pandemic. So right. for our listeners, for your playbook, what has been a resource or something that you have found is valuable to help you? that you could share with others right now uh, kind of to add to their playbook? What's a resource or something? Could be a podcast, it could be a software, it could be a, a group. What's something that you could share with other educators that has helped you maintain insanity, sanity in this time? You know, I don't subscribe to a specific podcast or, um, you know, anything like that. I, I rely heavily on other colleagues, like those individuals that are APs like me, and we're all in the same boat. Mm-hmm. We're really good relationship together and we have really good conversations. So if I had to suggest or offer any advice to anybody that's listening out there is really just look to those individuals who are in your circle, whether it's classroom teachers, you know, looking to other classroom teachers, your administration, individuals who are in charge of certain, you know, curriculums. But for me as an, as an administrator, it's just relying on other APs and being able to to meet with them routinely and talk about these concerns that we have and really just bounce ideas off, you know, one another. I learn a lot just from having conversations from other individuals. Cause you're right. I don't have all the answers. Uh-uh. I'm not perfect. And yes, I jack things up on a regular basis, you know, like for example, the schedule that we had to change again, because we changed our, we, we brought all the kids back. So it's like, 
check that one up. You know, but it's just, and it's constantly reaching out to them. Hey, you know, what are you doing for this? Or how did you do this? Or how did you, it's really just relying on those individuals that are in your close circle, you know, that at work. Beyond that, I'm always on the internet looking for different ideas, writings, articles from individuals who have been in my position, Mm -hmm. who have experienced, you know, some of the things that I'm experiencing. And I just look for those things, studies, periodicals, anything that I can use as a resource to try to, to share with my staff, to share with my colleagues. But really, it's just relying on the individuals that I work with, because that's where I get the majority of my support. And I, I learn the most about what they did wrong and how mm-hmm. they that one up and mm-hmm. what they would do differently. So therefore, <laughs> when I'm going <laughs> to do something, I'm like, oh, I know so-and-so did that. And that was jacked up. So therefore, I'm not going to do that. So, you know, it just helps. Yeah. Well, that's what I do. And that would be the only advice that I No, have. that's good. I mean, I just throw it out because some people are like in professional learning networks and some people like whatever, but I would just tell you this. What I love is just having these conversations. I mean, this is where I learn. I learn every single guest on the show, no matter what their experience, from students all the way to superintendents, I, I learn so much. And so as we wrap up today's episode, I just want to thank you for what you've given to me, not just personally reconnecting as a, as a personal friend, but also for what you're doing in education and to learn that you, as you've pointed out, you know, we can all struggle, but it's how we handle those struggles and what we can right. see through those struggles, and, but then share those struggles. And I think that's kind of what I'm taking away from today, Mire, is the fact that not only did you see success through your struggles, the sharing of your struggles continues to help you be successful with your staff and with your students. It allows you to be vulnerable, but yet allows you to to gain the connections necessary for staff and students so that you can use those those needed connections to continue to be the strong leader that you're currently are. So thank you for what you do, man. I appreciate that. And it's been a pleasure being part of your podcast. You know, I've never done this before, but it's been very entertaining and something that I would love to do again. It was awesome. So it's, it's great to see you and reconnect as well. Absolutely. Thanks for being on the show. I appreciate it. Take care of yourself. 